Hey, welcome to the Jungle Brothers Podcast. Uh, guys, it's episode 100. It's a monumental day for us. Uh, ton, the ton. The ton. Um, we thought it was going to be something huge. We had this huge, big plan. T was going to be involved and then turns out T's away. So we thought, you know what? Well, we're kind of planning on taking this podcast to at least a thousand episodes. So there's no real point to celebrate a hundred. That said, I brought cakes. Yeah, no candles, but, and we got Justin here today. We've got old mate so of mine. So it's a big episode. Justin Lang in the house. Juzzy, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. Mate, um, before we kick in, let me just get off with a couple of uh, couple of important housekeeping items. I fucked up the recording on last week's episode. I got no idea what happened. And uh, safe to say, it, it's one in a hundred that I fucked up. Um, I fucked up like three or four Back in, in the, Paul, the first 20, 30 when yeah, we were figuring it out. It's true. Come Paul, on. you were the pioneer <laughs> of the podcast. You were the guy. I've come in at a stage where the technology is a little bit more user-friendly and, and slightly more idiot-proof, but it's not 100% idiot-proof. Anyways, I apologize for that. Um, that was the episode where Paul and I were talking about fitness wearables. Um, in any case, uh, I've done about 15 sound checks today. And I'm really hoping <laughs> we that should be good works. to go. Yeah, we're good. Um, Panavore, they sponsor the show, the coffee. We've got the cream today. We've got the cakes from Panavore. Absolute fucking legends. If you're in Pagewood, go check them out. Tree trains with us. He owns the cafe. He's an absolute savage. Um, good people. Uh, Jiu-Jitsu Beginners Workshop. It's happening this weekend. By the time you're listening to this, if you want an introduction to what they call the gentle art that isn't really that gentle, um, come and check it out. It's open to anyone. Uh, we've just got limited numbers, so you've got to make sure you, uh, you click and register via Eventbrite. That's 20th of March. 20th of March. Thank you. 20th of March, Saturday, 9 a.m. Um, and then if you need any training help, obviously get at us, junglebrothers.com and at Jungle Brothers Movement. Um, our guest today, Justin Lang. Juzzy, let me give a little intro about who you are and how I know okay. you, please. And then I'm going to you know, hand it over to you. His view of you. How he sees you. Yeah. <laughs> what did so, you come up with? <laughs> so back when I was um, a very, well, back when I was, I'm still a brown belt, but when I was a very early brown belt in jiu-jitsu, I did a stint of training um, at a gym in Alexandria. And one of the legends who I trained with there, a guy named Alex Prates. Prats? Prates. Prats. I still don't know. <laughs> I think it's Prats. I think it's Prats. So I trained with Alex and Alex was, was a coach there and, and uh, he coaches Rob Whitaker in jiu-jitsu. He's, he knows his stuff. Um, Alex always said to me, you have to fucking train with Justin. You and Justin have to train <laughs> together. He's like, you're like mirror images. That's how you meant. Yeah, mirror yeah, images of each other. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, man, he's really strong. He's, got, he's really flexible. He's got a gym. He's teaching people very similar to what you guys are doing at Jungle Brothers. And, you know, naturally the competitive side of me was like... <laughs> He's got a gym like mine. He's strong. You know. Yeah. Okay. Okay, Alex. Anyways, we did get the opportunity to roll together once and it literally was like fucking meeting my match. There was like, there was limbs that could go anywhere. The ranges were all strong. There was control everywhere. And it was like, it was really cool. We finally got to connect. Um, and so that was how I, I met Justin. And I think we had, we had a little chat maybe about what we do and training yep. sort of thing, but not, a, not to any great extent. Um, cut to uh, a, f a couple of years later when I ruptured my ACL, again, trained jiu-jitsu, um, talking with a friend and he was like, man, you got to go see Justin. You, you got to go see him for your rehab. So I was about nine months or 12 months into the, the like post-surgery, but I thought I'll give Justin a call, see what's happening. You invited me down to your gym. I went down, you took me through a few simple tests. Uh, basically what you how you sold your your knowledge and yourself to me in that moment, I was like, this is the fucking place I need to be 
to get my Thanks. to get my knee back to to where I want it to be. Um, and I felt like I was in really good hands. And you also took me on a tour of your gym, which is quite different to ours in many ways. Yep. And we'll go into what the differences are, you know, later. But um, I was really impressed with the space and with how you were sort of carving your own path and you had this this idea of helping optimize people who have knee injuries and other sort of uh, injuries from sports and whatnot. Um, and so, yeah, so that was it. And I've been training with you now for three months. Yeah, about three months, yep. About that. Uh, and it's been fucking awesome. And so I've wanted to get you on the show ever since. And, and um, yeah, so it's a real pleasure to have you here. No, I'm happy to be here. Good man. Um, could you give us a little background on you, sort of, you know, where your gym's at, how you came into the whole thing? You know, you've got a, an interesting story going back with your dad and with the rugby league and all that. Yeah, basically, I sort of grew up in a football family. So my dad coached, we moved from um, Queensland to uh, New South Wales out of Sydney. Um, in 1994 when he started coaching the Cronulla Sharks. And I did, you know, my first introduction to like, again, being a trainer, I was, I was mixing the Gatorade and I goes, you should probably get qualified for this. So I did his sports <laughs> To mix first. the Gatorade. Well, because I, no, I was helping out and I was sort of running on the field and stuff. And then I did my level one sports trainers. I think I was 14 and I remember the lady saying at the time, I don't know if there's an age limit on this thing. I don't think there is. So I, I did it. I, was, I think it would have been 15 by now. But I became a level one sports trainer at 15. I was taping ankles, running on the field for reserve grade, giving water out. But I mean, I always say like a kid that grew up on a farm, I grew up in a professional sporting environment. I used to go from straight from Woolaware High across the road to Shark Park where they play. It's like a five minute walk every day after school and then spend my whole, you know, like from 3.30 to eight o'clock at night there. I'd come home with dad. No way. Yeah, so I, that, that was my sort of introduction into, you know, that. Then I became a PT. Didn't re, I didn't really enjoy personal training for weight loss. It was just wasn't my thing. Um, so I got into I went and I got into I went to uni, did sports science. So I went more down the SNC path initially. And then decided I didn't want to still wasn't right for me and I decided that I, I sort of want to do my own thing. So I left training sports teams in the early 2000s and just trained people out of my garage and we got too busy for that. Council, a neighbour complaints council came over and said, <laughs> you can't keep doing this. So then I moved into about 150 square metre um, space and we were doing mainly gym work and I started doing a bit more rehab there and it's just sort of flowed on. We outgrew that and we moved to a space similar to yours um, in Carring Bar. And then, yeah, now we've sort of, I'm an exercise physiologist, so, you know, working with using exercise to fix things or improve health and wellness. Uh, we ma I'm mainly specialised in musculoskeletal rehab, but I've got a team of staff as well, that physio, um, another EP, sports scientist, and, and a tr another p personal trainer as well who run what we do from the gym. So that's sort of where it's at. Does the um, does sports science is that any kind of precursor or prerequisite for e for exercise physiology, or they're just two separate degrees? Nah, well, it's actually it's the same degree. Like it's a bit, to be honest, it's it's a bit complicated. So you do um, an undergrad degree in ex in sports uh, exercise science, whatever the course name is, but you can be a sports scientist, you can be an exercise physiologist, and you can be an exercise scientist. Is the confusion. Holy shit. Yeah. So an exercise scientist is basically you haven't done the additional training to – it's more like a, a university qualified sort of 
personal trainer essentially. Mm. Uh, that might offend a few people, I'm not sure, but that's <laughs> you're working with healthy populations. Mm. An exercise physiologist, you've got this training to use exercise for chronic conditions and musculoskeletal rehab. And there's a massive crossover going between physio and EP now. Um, mm. And then a sports scientist, you actually have to meet criteria to showing that you can know how to test things. And um, you'd normally work more in a professional setting if you're a sports scientist, but I actually hold that qualification as well as an exercise physiologist. So, yeah, it just sort of means that you do testing for more for sport rather than uh, injury rehab. But we actually use a lot of that testing for our rehab. I think we put you on the load cells and that type of thing when you came in. So we're using that sports science equipment to like monitor injuries and that type of thing. Yep. So that was one of the um, one of the things that I think I was really impressed by, and and something that I saw uh, great value in was yeah when I came in you the the tests that you do, and I'm guessing that the tests obviously change based on the individual and what their situation is, but they're very. Um, it's a very scientific approach. Like it's very, it's very accurate. You're measuring things. It's, it's, there's no kind of guesswork. Um, I mean, I guess you, you, there's always a bit of guesswork, but you're, you're reducing that as much as you can. Yeah. And so you're trying to get this thing down to where you've got like really clear data. And then that's the data that you're operating off to kind of determine when someone is rehabbed or when they're good to go back to yeah. sport. Well, I th- you know what it is, there's an art to science and a science in art. I think that, you know, they say, and I think like, um, with, you know, we, we do try to be objective in terms of like getting like measures of leg strength and symmetry from side to side. So if you're operating at a deficit, like say under 90% limb symmetry and you're doing say jits or particularly doing high speed cutting sports like, you know, field sports in Australia, footy, soccer, whatever, hockey, you, you're at an increased risk of an injury, particularly if you've had an injury and then there's the deficit. Um, so just to clarify that for folks who are hearing this and, and like trying to keep up, it's you're saying that when essentially one leg is stronger than the other uh, to a degree that's that's less than or there's more not, than a 10% difference. Yeah, for sure. That would probably be because like if you if we if no one had a so if you took 10 jits um, guys from your gym and they weren't injured and you tested their limb symmetry, they're highly likely to have like be asymmetrical. Like they're probably not going to be a, if we do like a leg extension test, so you sit in a chair and push into these load cells that measure force, like the old seated leg extension. Yeah. And that which measures quad strength. It's highly likely that plenty of them will be, one leg will be under 90%, like probably their like non-dominant leg. But uh, so, I mean, n- most people who aren't even, don't even have an injury are walking around asymmetrical. But after an injury, what we know is that if you have a knee reco or a meniscus operate, probably more of a knee reco, that limb symmetry can get down to like 30%. Like even 20, when you get out of surgery, like you haven't really moved your knee much for like six weeks in that first six period, it gets very weak. And people can go back to sport at like, try at 50% limb symmetry. And the research, like there's a study that was done that looked at meeting these four criteria. And basically it was this, if you meet these four criteria on um, strength, balance, jumping and landing, you get symmetry, so greater than 90%, your risk of a second ACL injury goes from 40% down to 10%. So a 30% reduction in risk by meeting these targets. But you know, you said about the um, taking the guesswork out, a lot of people, it's a lot of it's going around at the moment, like knees over toes squatting. And we do that uh, for certain people in our gym. But some, like I'm getting, I've had a few people that have sort of, you know, tried to do that and it hasn't worked for them. And it's because the, um, 
you know, that that might be, say, exercise is medicine, but you can overdose on medicine. So that exercise is like a bit of medication. It doses the knee with with load. But if it's not the right time or if it's not for the right condition, it can potentially make it worse. And on the flip side, you can underdose. So if you sit there doing, you know, you've got a one kilo ankle weight on your, you know, on your ankle and you're doing leg extensions and it's still six months post-surgery, well, that's underdosing and you will never get back to 90% limb symmetry. So the art to it is how far, so we've got the science and we can check it, the art to it is how far you push someone each session to create an overload that gets this tissue response. There's a great term called mechanotransduction and it's the scientific explanation for why, how exercise um, is used to mechanically load the body and provide a stimulus on the human tissue cell and your body responds and adapts to that stimulus. I mean, if there's anyone that's like right into their rehab, like that's such a cool thing to look up is mechanotransduction. So they call exercise therapy mechanotherapy. So like mechanical therapy, Mm. exercise being mechanical because there's mechanical load going through it. So again, if you had, again, if someone was treating your knee still with manual therapy, Manual therapy being they're putting their hands touching, on you. poking, prodding, pricking, feeling, right, yep. whatever, osteotype stuff. Yeah, yep. there's a there's definitely we do that. We mm. our physio does that, um, but there's a time and a place for it. And some probably traditionally in Australia and a lot of other places, just rehab that goes for too long. And it's like, yeah, my knee feels great, but the, this condition's lying dormant in the body, and then all of a sudden you'd go to try to, you know, go back to jits. And you haven't built the capacity to do what you do. So rehab is just all about what do you want to be able to do in sport or your life? And then in your training, even if someone's not injured, like what you guys are doing, you've just got to make sure that you can meet the demands of what you need to be able to do and hopefully exceed the demands. And then you're at less risk of injury if you develop a bulletproof body for BJJ. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because you're basically building these tissue capacity to handle someone compressing you or getting twisted. Uh, I mean, just doing a program like that one that you run, like it's, it has to cut down, it will just cut down the risk because it's like you're, you're training all the movement patterns that underlie jujitsu. So, but you train them in isolation and you put, you put them all together and then the whole stronger, you know? So, yeah. and, and that's essentially what we're doing with rehab, you know? So, um, yeah, so that's basically a, that sort of approach to rehab. So that's the, to, you know, to, to pick a, a term that you used before that, the dosage piece yep. and, and, and finding the right balance there, not underdosing, not overdosing. Um, and I, you know, I think for, I think for folks, anyone that's training can, can understand that it's like, there's a sweet spot with, you know, even for simple stuff, you come into the gym, you're doing, you know, five by five deadlifts. There's some, you know, there's a load there and there's an amount of volume that's that's bang on and you leave that session and you're like, fuck, that was tough, bit sore for a couple of days, but you come back and week to week you're getting stronger. But then you, you can also just cook yourself with that, fry your lower back, maybe you're deadlifting too often, like you're overdosing on that thing. 100%. You're taking it too far. So that exists in training in general, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's you know, it's the, um, if you want to bring it back to uh, like, Physiology. I think it's called the Hans Sales Stress Adaptation Model. Um, if you look that up, and it's basically, you know, when a stimulus is applied to the body, homeostasis is disrupted, 
and you go into a catabolic state. So if that's baseline, apply the stimulus, which is like a weight training session. When you leave that session, your body is in a catabolic state. The tissue's broken down. So if you were to perform another session while you're below the curve, below homeostasis, you wouldn't perform as well. So if you did a bench press session, then two hours later did another one, you won't hit the same numbers because you, you know, you've had tissue breakdown. You go home, you go away, and what happens is that it stops dropping and the curve starts to trend back up towards baseline. But with training, we know that you get this overcompensation or supercompensation. Same like Sounds like call a supercompensation. Yeah, supercompensation. <laughs> and it goes above. So off that stimulus, you end up above home, the homeostasis, the baseline. And then if you time another stimulus again, then it drops below and it goes back to baseline supercompensation. And you get that's that linear progression that people get in strength training is that it just adapts to stress. And I always say to people like in rehab, I'm always saying this, like the women in Africa that might wear the, the neck rings and the, the, I don't know what they're called, but in the plates, in the, plates gum. In, the, in, the, in the gum and that type of thing, the body just adapts to stress. It's unbelievable. Like, and I think if most of the time, boys, like I reckon if a, if a rehab fails, like strength doesn't fix everything, it doesn't. Like surgeries are required, um, things lock, things are unstable if you don't get surgery. But most of the time for, for the majority of rehabs, I reckon people are either not consistent enough or, or give up on the rehab, stop doing the process. So we always talk about the process, which is just rocking up to training and hitting that following, dosage. Yeah. Following what you're following taking, taking your medicine. Yeah, taking your medicine. Like the, the process to becoming good at BJJ is get on the mat, you know, three, four, five times a week, you know. Um, so most people give up on that before they actually truly find out if that exercise therapy program was before going to fix their problem and they go to surgery too early. Um, like I said, there, there are definitely conditions where exercise is, and I've had them, is not going to work anymore and you need, um, like backs can get to a point where you need a disc replacement and spinal fusion and do, trying to build strength or even relax the muscles and are not going to get you where you need to go in terms of like with your pain. So, But I'll say this, like I just think that stress adaptation model, you've, if you – for most injuries, um, if if you drive that up and you stay consistent, the body just heals itself. You know, through natural history, it just the body is very good at healing itself. You've got to facilitate that healing. With that supercompensation model, um, is it possible that one ge- part of the gene pool could basically um, hack it? And I'm talking about Fijians here because I know Paul and his brother used to go do heavy squats and then they'd go jump out on the fucking rugby field and smash everyone hours later. You remember when you guys would do yeah, that? Yeah. And Mose would be like, yeah, we go do heavy squats before we before we play footy. And I was always like, dude, that doesn't make any sense to me. He was like, oh, I feel fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it was a long time ago. I was young. He was the older brother. Look at you, that does not surprise me. <laughs> now, nah, yeah, but, yeah. but look, I think, so, well, I mean, if you, th- if you want to think critically about that, what you just said then, sorry. Um, <clears throat> Let's just say, you know, he's probably with his genetic, you know, makeup, he's probably squatting, you know, 150. And then when he steps out on the field, you know, he's probably a bit tired, but he can still squat 130, hypothetically. Yeah. And then the skinny white kid 
is like knees are folding in at 70 kilos. <laughs> so even, even if he doesn't do gym and he's fresh, yeah. he's yeah. still so far below athletically and he's still a beast anyway. But like, you know, another thing people talk about, I don't know, Joe, you wouldn't remember this. It was like, um, like you have to train chest and shoulders on the same day, otherwise the anterior deltoid is going to get injured. That was uh -huh. a bit, do you remember that? Yeah. It was just like bad programming if you do – chest on one day and shoulders on the next. It just, I don't know what was going to happen. Like these anterior deltoids just falling out of people's bodies or something. Like, you know. But it was like, now, I mean, it, it, it does make sense that are two pushing movements that you do it together. But, you know, you can do anything you want to do. Like there's dudes who are on a hammer all day and their body just adapts to it. Like you, you could squat every day. Mm. But, I mean, at some point, like you, and, you know, if you keep going with, say, five sets of five heavy squats every day, you'll probably just end up over time maybe – adapting to that and be able to handle that. But if you go, if you ramp that program up too quickly, you know, well, there's if too much actually, stress. If you're actually maxing out on each of those days. Yeah. But I don't even know if the maxing out's the problem. It's almost just like, obviously it is, but it's like, if you say, let's hypothetically say you maxed out once a week and then just went, you know, sub max 70% for the next four days and your body could handle that. Then you throw in another max out day. You just keep doing that same program, squatting every day. And then you do one on, you max out on Monday, Thursday, and every other day is 70%. Then you max. And over a period of years, you went to maxing out. The, like the women in Africa, their bodies just adapt to stress. It's like, it's just amazing what I reckon. But no one's going to probably do that, be bothered doing it. What are you doing it for? But you do, you know, you, you see these programs where people come out and they defy what we've always thought you should do. And often they get good results because just they just sort of, think, you know, in the words of Craig Alexander, the three-time, um, sorry, five-time world champion triathlete, he is a good friend of mine. He said, more is always better unless you get sick or injured. So we're walking in the gym and people are like, do you reckon I should put the weight up? Or do you reckon I, do you reckon I could do another one of these? Do you reckon mm -hmm. I could do another session of jits? Yeah. But just remember this, more is always better unless you get sick or get injured. <laughs> so it's like, because any, anyone that's doing, you know, like obviously I know the boys out at Smeaton Grange and they're producing high-level MMA fighters, even the guys not in the UFC. And they, I would like to think that they are, I mean, I can't speak for other gyms, but I just know, mate, they are doing the work. Like they are just grinding every day they're hitting multiple sessions multiple sessions every day yeah yep. you get booted if you don't rock up the sessions you know um they're pushing they're off their, off their protein yeah sort of they just yep. they just i mean they run at a high standard at a high standard yeah like uh, guys are got to work and stuff but again even then I'm, it's it's like the, they're not doing that to make the fight team's not there to make money it's to produce good fighters and you know i mean it's a big thing to take on a fighter and they don't do the work and they don't win because when you don't win in Looks bad. <laughs> MMA, right, and, and yeah. you get beaten up, you know. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I just think that, you know, that, that fundamental principle is, you know, we all – I'm rigorous in everything that we do. So if we're going to do something and do it well, we're rigorous in our rehabs. So I like people to be trying to rehab, you know, on a knee. Like I think you need to be in every second day, you know, and just hitting at least three sessions a week. But you can get good benefit from – doing one session or even you take it Joey like where if someone's doing something wrong in their knee rehab and then you actually take that away 
So that, because again, if they're doing a loading that's irritating the knee, even just actually taking away that stimulus without even doing any extra rehab, it's like we well, have just saved them there. Like, yeah, mm, probably- It's a gain. Yeah, it's a gain because you're, you're stopping out the wearing out process of the knee. So if you're doing some sort of tissue loading that might be annoying the arthritis in the knee and you stop doing that, their knee will feel instantly better, even without any sort of strength gain. Uh, I got a question um, about the rehab and I guess it's, I'm a fairly young PT. You've been doing it three years and um, it's a question on like uh, language and feedback that you get from clients. Yep. So say I, I feel like a, a lot of this uh, you're talking about with people and super conversation to do with strength, but more for the rehab, say if you have like tendon and ligament that's been damaged. Yep. And, you know, we've come to the rep ranges that we know are safe. I think, you know, historically from studies and tests and decades of knowledge being put together. So we know what works based on yep. papers and stuff over time. Um, but still in that process, there has to be a bit of a feedback process from the client or the person, right? Yep. So like say you go, okay, this person it needs to be low intensity and high volumes and yep. they need this much dosage and you have to make sure they don't do any more than that yep. in the weeks because we're going to start this process. And then they need to somehow let you know how it's going. Yep. Um, and this is like to do with pain. Um, like, you know, because you're not going to test them maybe for uh, like with any force plates or anything at that point. But no. ha like uh, I guess the question's around – how do you get feedback off someone, especially if it's in the tendon ligament? Do you ask for verbal feedback? Do you have a, yep. a thing there? Or is do you have to rely for, like you said, a certain period and then get feedback after four weeks and you always err on the side of caution? You kind of get what no, I'm saying. No, I get exactly what you're saying. Yeah. So, like, for instance, for a tendon, tendon mm. rehab will be – you'll have pain in your rehab. Um, tendons like load. They're, they're – they're put in your body to handle high loads. They mm. like load. They don't like to be overloaded very quickly and they really don't like to be deloaded. So let's say, for instance, <clears throat> excuse me, let's say, for instance, someone starts running and they develop a sore Achilles. That's probably come about as a result in a spiking of the amount of load that's gone through that Achilles. Mm. Now, if you just sort of remove that stimulus, it'll probably just settle back down. But if it develops into like a tendinopathy, so you've got like a pathology in the tendon, the, and, it, and what happens is the tendon will lose its capacity to do what it does, which is store and release load. Then what you need to do is we need to strength train our way out of that. You need to use exercise to load it, to rebuild that capacity. But you know that you're going to have pain when you load that tendon. So we would say, let's work at a pain threshold of, two or three out of 10, uh, two, two to three out of 10 of pain. Mm. And that would be a guide for a tendon. If someone does- Can you just define a tendinopathy or a pathology? What do we, what's that actually mean? Like an irritated tendon. Like you've sort of done some sort of damage to the structure of the tendon. Right. Um, and now that tendon has lost its capacity to, yes, store and release energy. Um, sometimes that might mean that it's um, like you develop a lump on the tendon Sometimes there might not be a lump there. There might just sort of be some inflammation on the surrounding tissues around the tendon. So it's not all exclusive. There's different issues you can get with tendons. But essentially, they. Or another big one is that you'll get you know, players are playing all year, like soccer players, they're running. Then they just, you know, the, the pro guys, then they have a month off and go to Ibiza and party. And they're used to like running, you know, 30Ks a week, 40Ks a week, mm. playing two games a week. And training, 
and then all of a sudden it goes to zero. So that tenon's sitting there going, where's my load? Like I was getting like 40 kilometres of running or it might be a marathon runner. And then all of a sudden you just go cut to zero. So this could actually be explained through Tim Gabbett's research in acute to chronic workload ratios. Um, you know, like for people that are doing sport, like you, you need to get it. For BJJ, I mean, not so much, but you, you could still apply like a, your acute workload is the amount of load that you do in one week and the chronic workload is the average workload that you've done over, you know, the previous four weeks. So let's just say if you're used to running, um, you go for four, two and a half K runs, that's 10 Ks a week. And you do that um, four weeks in a row, your average 40 Ks over four weeks. So your average workload is uh, 10 kilometers. If you then the next day or the next week, you run uh, 20 kilometers that week. So you go for four or five K runs that would be an acute to chronic workload ratio of two to one. And what the research shows, there's a sweet spot for reducing load and increasing load. And it's in this sort of like 0.85, so anything below one would be a reduction in load. Anything above one is more, you've done more that week compared to the average of the previous four weeks. So there's a sweet spot of like 0.85 to 1.3. So again, if you guys, if someone's doing two JIT sessions a week and they <laughs> straight away went to four, and you're talking about 60 minutes of jits twice a week, 120 minutes, and they go to 240, there's a, there's a really good chance that they're going to say, my back's sore. Ju- their body's just not used to that. On top of that, for jits, you can twang your bloody, you know, your knee or whatever, mm. and then you've got an injury. But just on like training load and wondering why your back is stiff, if you've doubled your workload, so you can reduce the risk of that happening. So sporting teams now using like sports scientists, they're measuring this and they're respecting those um, increases. Increases, And they just, they're tracking every play. They're looking at how many exposures to like high speed running. So if you jack your high speed running exposure up too quickly, hamstring strains. If you reduce the work in the gym and don't build the tolerance. In the off season. Yeah, you've reduced. So we know, right, that through that acute to chronic workload ratio is that the way you don't get injured is you've got to develop a body that can do chronically high workload. So more load every week is better as long as you've built up to it safely. So having more load high, every week is better. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so yeah. having a body that's actually capable of doing a lot of work, you get it's like builds this thicker links on the chain. It builds this resilience to load, right? Yeah. So like if your body's capable, but the thing is if you try to get to that point too quickly – you'd spike your load if you mm. spike your load. So you've just so if you if your baseline is 10Ks, you know, or well if you multiply that by, you know, 1.2, well, you know, you might increase it to 12 kilometers next week, not go to 20. Yeah. So there's actually some science behind that you can that can guide you on that. You know, just back to your question though, in terms of the ligament, let's just say like in dudes always doing you know, grade two ligament um, injuries to their knees in, in jiu-jitsu, right? On that, if there's laxity, depending on if there's a degree of laxity, that's when they'll sometimes brace a knee and they brace it in a range that doesn't stress the ligament. So we might do loading in a range of 30 degrees knee flexion to 90. That's the range that the brace is set in. Mm. So like I'll show you guys, like you said, you're working Kinda in like this. like you're riding a bike. Yeah, you're range. working in that sort of middle range. But if you went to lock out your knee, that stresses the ligament on the same, if you talk about the medial ligament, and if you bend it back too far, it stresses it. So we might, on that one, I would want them loading. And they've got some mild discomfort because – you know, just cleaning their teeth. I always say in rehab, 
People are like, how do you know if it's pain's too much? I said, well, if your knee's sore at a one out of 10 cleaning your teeth, let's not be too concerned if it's a one out of 10 doing a leg press on a reformer because <laughs> you just got a sore knee, right? Yeah. But so, so on a ligament though, you wouldn't push it like a tendon because you want that ligament to scar up. It's like a, it's a, it's a structure mm. that supports the knee and you want it to scar up and, and heal tight. So if you're sitting there getting into – so if someone did a grade two and there's laxity in that ligament and your knee is a bit loose, they do a test for that. The physio do a test for that. Yep. Um, then – and you start banging away at either end of range or pushing through a bit of pain, it can heal lax. So now you've got this sort of lax, I see, bit yeah. of a lax ligament there that's not as tight. So you wouldn't want to be on a ligament. I'd be like, let's try to load it without – putting too much, you know, when you, if you respect those ranges for the ligament, you won't increase, like you can actually put some load through the knee to stop the quads atrophying and you won't compromise the healing of that ligament. But like a muscle, a muscle's not as like resilient as a, as a tendon. So if you strain your hemi or your pec, again, you want some pain. So I say if they don't, feel, on a muscle and tendon, if they don't feel pain, you're not in the ballpark. Yeah, yeah. You, you're, yeah you're, sure. you're you're underdosing. You're not because you need this to, to apply. You need to apply stress to get mm. the adaptation. So how's this, right? On can you just before that? Yeah. Can you just for folks who are listening and, and less uh, knowledgeable in the field, what's the difference between a tendon and a ligament? So yeah, like I said, uh, uh, you, actually your Achilles tendon on the back of your foot. That's there. Like when you jump and land, it's like provides this like spring. It's for energy storage and release. So that's it attaches the muscle to the bone. And then basically a ligament will often attach bone to bone. So you've got like in your knee, like the the, the, the medial ligament goes from the bone in the upper leg to the to the lower leg and it stops that joint from falling apart. So you got all these different ligaments around joints bone to bone. And then tendons generally go from a muscle into a bone. It connects that part. Okay. So, so the, and the, is there a contractile property then to uh, to tendons? Yes. Yeah. yeah whereas yeah. there's not to a ligament. Like it moves, but it doesn't. It doesn't contract. Uh, yeah. I mean, we're we getting into the reeds. Yeah, there? I think <laughs> get into the red zone here. <laughs> you ask me questions, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, essentially, it it it'd be it's a yeah a ligament is designed for support, not for energy storage and release. Okay. And there'd be a degree of like pliability to the ligament. So you know. I've, have I spoken to you about those twist squats and inside squats? Yeah. You know, no, where you actually, collapse your knees inside. Yeah, we, I, we do a lot of those. Yeah. So, I mean, times. so the, the guy, you know, the guy from um, um, Summers, the, the gymnastics bodies coach? Yeah. yeah. Christopher Summer. Yeah. So, like, he's big on doing. He does what, those. Yeah. All the twisting type the rotational stuff. Rotational squats. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. 100%. So, I mean, it, look, I don't even think there's any research out there, but when you look at what a knee does, when you sidestep, it valguses in. Yeah. When we do jits, it valguses. So it doesn't make sense just to train linearly. Like you have to put I, – I, so you have to put some sort of stress. So I've got no doubt – I mean the ACL – no, so we know that ligaments adapt to load because the ACL ligament gets thicker um, in a competitive season and the off-season gets thinner. So that it'll have it's got some sort wow. of yeah it adapts to load as Responds. well. Responds, but it's the, it's when you said to me how does it operate? It's not like for storage and release of energy. It's like for support of a joint. Mm. So yeah, I'm I'm a big believer in doing those, you know, knee bending activities to to stress it, and and to keep the joints pliable, particularly as you get older. I mean, it's um, 
I sort of feel like then there's like meniscus. Like that's mm. just a, that's another tissue. It's like a shock absorber um, in the knee, and you know the meniscus can heal. Um, I I sort of wonder, like you know, when, when someone does, um, like a bone can heal, and so when someone has a stress fracture, they often go like, you know, well, you've got to stop sport, like in, and stop, you know, walking on it. Someone might even go into crutches for like, you know, even like a, say for instance, like a stress fracture and a vertebra in the back. It's often, we've got some really good, like, um, you know, Andrew McDonald, Dr. Paul Annette, sports physicians that, like, I refer to because they've got an understanding of what we do. And say someone's got a stress fracture in a vertebra in their back, rest for six weeks minimum is generally the thing that you do, right, to let this bone heal up six weeks, so, so like, for bone healing. But I sort of wonder, I, I'm, like, if someone had to say yes or no, right or wrong, do, you, do I think that an element of loading would help facilitate the bone healing, like some sort of just like compressive stress, like walking? Mm. I'm sure the bone would probably heal better if you walked the earth rather than just lay down in a, um, in a bed for six weeks for that bone. I'd agree. Now, the, so the ACL, I mean, this is this. So my first ACL was done by Merv Cross, who was the guru knee surgeon. My dad, when I did my ACL – coach's son he was like said to the club doctor who's the best and they said <laughs> Merv Cross and uh, Merv Cross is you know one of the most well-known knee surgeons in Sydney and I had my patella tendon done as my graft my knee reconstruction his son Tom Cross is a sports physician and he's doing the cross bracing protocol and what it is for certain types of ruptures of the ACL ligament this this mid-substance rupture of the ligament which just basically ruptures straight through the middle, if they get the knee locked in a brace for uh, four to six weeks, it's four weeks, the protocol is this, you lock the knee in a brace for four weeks and at 90 degrees, those two ends of the torn ligament at their closest point, they've looked at that study that on MRI, that their anatomical closest point, they are getting almost – I'm pretty sure everyone who's done mid-substance, there's been about 30 guys who have mid-substance ruptures done this protocol. I'm pretty sure all 30 have healed. They call it a full anatomical heal where the ACL reattaches itself back together again. Now, that's one where they used to put the knee on a scooter, you know, that, those sort of scooter things, you know, sort of walk I around. I had one of those. Yeah. So <laughs> I said to what I met with Tom, because so right now- I, 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 I saw Tom once for my shoulder. He works at the SFS. Yes, he does. Adrian Betts. Was yeah, good friends with him, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's a good guy, man. He, he's, he's a cool knows dude. His shit. Yeah, and very personable, like just a guy you can have a conversation with. Mm. You know, if you're a patient, you'd be well looked after under him. And but he he said to me, I said, Oh, you put them in a in a on the scooter. And he said, No, we don't do that anymore. We want crutches because we found that on the scooter, there's still like movement on the knee, on the probably padding of the scooter. So they just want the knee locked in a brace. So he talks about like- Locked at 90 degrees, Locked at say? 90 for four weeks. Be a wow. pain in the ass. Oh, that's awkward. Yeah, I've actually got one of my, so, you know, one of my, um, you know, a footballer who spoke to me about rehabbing his knee. Um, one of my guys is doing it at the moment. He'd be about four weeks in and then they get to move it from, I think, 30 to 90 in weeks, four to six. But basically you're in a brace for about eight weeks, but they slowly wean you off the lockness at like fat four weeks. Mm. Um, but what they're getting, so with no loading, he wants no loading. He just wants that ligament to find itself 
and it finds itself and they get in these full anatomical heels. So people say to me, oh, just- So you, for a visualization, it's like, like the ACL ligament's super tiny, right? It's very short. Yeah, I guess it's probably like, um, you know, maybe a pinky finger, maybe something like that. Right, and so- Do you, you know that like so <laughs> <laughs> And so you're saying it's snapped in the middle. Yep. And you've got these two two little bits of- Just of flapping in the ligament there. And they've got these little strands. Yep. And they're kind of just hanging out in your knee joint. The yep. idea is that they will start to find each other. They find each other. And then just like re-graft back yes, together. Yes, and that is happening. And what they're doing at the moment. So when someone- Some Spider-Man shit. Yeah, it is, 100%. So now when somebody, and this is where, you know, like I love the ACL rehab. So we, it's called a shared decision-making model. This is like really important information cool. to put out to the jujitsu community. So if, what happens when someone does their ACL now, the, what should happen is they should sit down with someone and be educated on what are your options. So your options are that you gotta find out what type of rupture you had. And you can look at that. So the doctor looks at the scan and there's a report. So in actual fact, the, the, the radiologists aren't even reporting on, they, they, they do report on a mid-substance rupture, but what there is, right, the kick is this. I've sent about, seven people to Tom who have contacted about ACL rehab. There's different bundles in the, in the ACL and what happens is that are coming out of the bone. One bundle can flip forward like a fringe on, like, in, you know, like someone's the hair, hair falls yeah, that way. Forward, and then one bundle can flip back the way you want it to go for, for the rupture. That's good for bracing. They know now that if one bundle flips forward, they'll still get some sort of healing locked at 90, but they call it a non-anatomical heal. It doesn't heal up like your true Completely. ACL ligament. So you might get a 50% heal. And you know what? You could say, I'm happy with 50%. Like, and heaps of people are operating with, with, with partially torn ACL. They wouldn't even know it. Mm. Heaps of people. Dude, I felt fine after I did mine. I could have... Like when I was in, after the initial week or, so, or two, yep. I, was, I felt like I was back to normal. Well, we know now that people can, if you do the stability training, some people can cope without an ACL. Peter Wallace from the Penrith Panthers did it. He played in the NRL without an ACL because you've just done the balance and proprioception work to handle. Like there are just, there's these cases like that that are out there and you, it's naive to think that they don't exist or you're not aware of, of, of those, those cases. Now there's research to show that even without bracing, the ACL ligament can heal. Um, so, um, so, so if you just walk around after you ruptured your, your ACL ligament, it will have some sort of healing. The only problem is it's like, did it heal up and there's now a bit of laxity? So when they do the Lockman's test, is it a bit lax, the, the healing? And you know, you, you want, I guess most people would want a, um, like a, a proper functioning ACL. But the, the, here's the kicker again. There's actually a lot of research to show that like if you go non-operative and you don't even do the bracing protocol, that people are going back to the sport, to sport with good rehab. You've got to do a rigorous rehab, like lots of hopping, landing, balance, proprioception, strength work um, for a minimum of three months and more likely you'd return to sport at about five or six months if you didn't go with surgery and you can have a stable knee. It might not be it might not be stable on a as stable on a test, but functionally, if you cut and you jump and land, your knee's stable. We've got clients that have taken that option in our gym, like again, because if you want to go the bracing, let's say for instance you're a candidate for the bracing protocol, and you, um, but you know what, you can't be in a brace for four weeks because you live at home, and you got to work, 
You got to walk around. So we've got a, a, a girl in our gym uh, that's done that and she's a PT. She couldn't afford to be in a brace locked at 90 for four weeks, but she didn't want surgery. So we just actually immobilised the knee in a brace for a period of time. Now she will have got some hit. We actually haven't looked at the MRI scan because it's been like four months there, five months even. She'll have some sort of healing, but she's back doing all these agility stuffs in the gym and she hasn't had surgery, but she hasn't gone back to sport yet. But there's lots of cases now where people have gone back to sport without surgery, without the bracing protocol, and they're coping. So the shared decision-making process is this. What type of rupture do you have? If it's the, if it's the flip bundle one, um, they don't like they, – they'll sort of recommend you're probably better off getting surgery or just going on operatively and not bracing it because they want the full anatomical heel if you brace it. If you've got the proper mid-substance rupture – I'm thinking if it was my son, I'd be like, dude, you're going in a brace four weeks. It's four weeks. Just get it done. Mm. Because you don't want, if you can avoid surgery, it's a big surgery. They're taking a piece of your like tendon or your, you know, well, there's different types of grafts, but you're, ta- you're taking, often taking some hamstring tendon out or, 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 or knee tendon out. It's br- they're drilling holes in your yeah, bone. Yeah, 100%. Like, you don't want surgery if you can avoid it. And I'm, I've had a fair few. So like I'm, I'm not anti-surgery at all. It's, sometimes you need it to fix stuff. But now we're knowing that, realizing that, well, you don't need it to fix some ACL ruptures. And they're getting this, it's not even, well, it might heal. It's like, nah, it's healing, you know. Mm. So, so then if you, if you can actually, if you've got the good type of rupture, if there is a, such a thing, um, you can go into that bracing protocol and then, um, then you just rehab it. Now, if you, if you get the, so but what's happening now, people are getting this mid-substance rupture they're not even knowing that the bracing protocol is an option because mm. they're going to an, a professional, even like a doctor, surgeon, or allied health professional, mm. and they're not being informed about their options. And they're just like, yep, Whatever go see the say, surgeon. Yep, yep, get surgery. So I'm a big believer too in going to see surgeons that have got a big wait list because they're just like, some of the surgeons that I know, they're just like, they're trying to get you to avoid surgery. They're more selective. 100%. They just, because they, they're so they're good, so they don't need to rack up surgeries to make money. I guess. I mean, it's just like anything else. If you're struggling for work, you need the work. Mm. Um, but I'm not saying. That's a great point. But I'm not saying that every like. I'm sure there are definitely, you know, surgeons out there that would like more work. Who would say don't get you don't need surgery? Yeah, sure. Yeah, but the reality yeah. is that, like every other profession, you know, you've got to do your own homework. Someone said to me once, "So you've actually got to rely on." Like, and you know, you, yeah, you do. Doctors get stuff wrong. Sur- mm. Surgeons get stuff wrong. You know, we all like m- m- can make, you know, just make different judgments. But this, this information about the, the bracing protocol, I'm sure he's, you know, he'd be getting some resistance from different parts of the health community. It's like, well, cause it, of it, course, it, the, the old school surgeons would be like, mate, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, you know how this bracing protocol come about? So Merv Cross is old school. And Tom said, what happened was, the story went something like this. There was a girl, she did her ACL, I think it was a netballer, and she was in tears and she's like, for whatever reason she didn't want to have surgery. I don't know if she'd already, I, I'm just not sure what the reason why she was so concerned about getting, you know, ACL surgery. And, he's, and Merv Cross goes to her, well, back in the day, we used to put people in a cast at 90 when they had this surgery and, you know, we had some success. So... Let's look at doing that. Mm. And we, that's an option. And she did it and it healed on the scan. And they're like, oh, we might be onto something here. So now they're, they, now they're collecting and more and more people are 
Um, but, but I've sent literally, I think, seven, maybe six people across to Tom and I've only had one that's had the mid-substance. And it's actually not that uncommon to have, but I just seem to be getting all these flip bundle people that are getting mm. this flip bundle. But he said to me that they were putting them in the brace, like, say, three months ago. They would have put a flip bundle in the brace, but now they're finding it because of the research, they're finding out that the flip bundles are getting the suboptimal heel. They know that now. So now, again, they probably would advise against maybe going into the brace for that inconvenience to only get a 50%, sure. you know, chance of a, of a, of a, of a healing. How um how uh, new is this is this shared protocol the shared decision making thing? This is fairly, and how many, if any, are people practicing it? Is it something industry wide that people are trying to actively spread? There is a guy called Kieran Richardson. He's a physio from WA. I did his course, and he's it's this non operative approach to ACL um, management, and he's leading the way. I would say in the allied health stream in terms of the research about it. He's advocating um, just to, you know, to look at it as an option and he's putting the research out there. And again, in his words, he he went to a conference, uh, like a, like a, a I think a, like a surgeon, like a medical specialist conference. And he said he was mocked. Mm. He was getting mocked from the crowd presenting this research saying that, you know, the ACL can sort of heal. Like, so, I mean, he's probably really pushing it hard in terms of getting the awareness out there. I sort of feel like, and he's been on it, onto it. Like, so I came across a study about 10 years ago, which when I had my meniscectomy done on my knee, and, I, and I, it was like ACLs can spontaneously heal. They got spontaneous healing of the ACL without any intervention. Mm. And I said to this surgeon, what do you think of this study? I took it in. And he goes, yeah, we know that they can heal. It's just a matter of like what it heals too. Like it can just flap around and attach to the PCL or it just, it just, it's just in there. But it's like tissue and mm. t- tissue's just floating in there like anything, you know. Like you cut your hair and you can get – if a hair drops on your ear, it can start growing out of your ear. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> it's actually like if you – like if it just sits <laughs> on your skin, no. it just attaches. It can, it can – like hair can do that. Just a, just a follicle of hair can just <laughs> fall on you. And Is it's that just, true? Yeah, like things, yeah, just, yeah. Like it's just, like if you- Your body's like a patch of dirt in your head. Well, whatever, <laughs> just, it's just things Sprouts. knit, you know, yeah. like yeah, your yeah. body knits, that's how your body heals, right? So, um, you know, so anyway, he basically said, yeah, but it's, it's what, so, but what happens, it takes time for someone and what, what they're trying to do with this bracing protocol is, you know, develop power by having more, um, like more people have gone through the bracing protocol. But mark my words, it, like the amount of people who go non-op, it's just going to accelerate. Mm. It's going to accelerate in in the coming years because more and more people, like I've sent, I, so what we do now is, so, but say, say if you sit down with a, a professional athlete and they get the perfect rupture for the healing, the, 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 the bracing protocol. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, let's say, I don't know, I can't say this for sure, but let's just say they're getting that 30 from 30 of a mid-substance rupture have healed in that 90-degree brace. Players are still looking at that now, medical staff, yeah, no, but no, 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 no. He's just going to get a Rico and nine months later. And that's an option, right? He's saying, let's go with what we know. We know that we'll get nine months. It's a process. It's proven. Proven. We'll just get it done. Heal up. And you can be, you know, back playing sport in, in nine months. The guarantee. The only problem with that guarantee is that 
a lot of athletes at a professional level don't meet that return to sport criteria and have a second ACL rupture. I can't sit here. Like I'm not a research guy that can sit here and quote what the numbers are, how many people get a re-rupture. But like it happens a lot. It's considerable. Yeah. And and if you meet the criteria, like I just gave you that one, you know, paper. Mm, mm. Um, I think the paper's by Caritzis. And it's, yeah, like if you don't meet certain criteria, you're just at an end. It makes co- complete sense, right? Like if, you, if, you, if your leg is deficit, you're at more risk of injury. No shit. Everyone sort of knows that. If you go back to JITS before your ribs healed, you're probably going to tweak it a little bit, sort of like that, right? Mm. So in terms of this, so hardly anyone is doing this, this shared decision-making protocol. If you said to me, how many people do I know? I, I know Kieran is. I know if you went to see. So when you sit down with Tom too, he's not biased. He'll sit there and don't put any pressure on you and just go present it. But how's this? I know one of the girls who I'm rehabbing at the moment said to me, oh, like some trainer said to her, Oh, you're going to go to um, Justin Lang? Oh, he's he's anti-surgery. Fucking no, I'm not <laughs> anti-surgery. <laughs> I've had like six. <laughs> like all I'm doing is I'm aware of the research. So ignorant to say that. Mm. I'm aware of the research. Fuck that guy. <laughs> or her. Yeah. Yeah, fuck that trainer. <laughs> and like if if um like I'm aware of the research, and all you do is you sit down and go. So the professional athlete might say, "Yep, look." You've got the perfect one for healing, but we've only had 30 from 30 healed. Uh, well, that's saying something in itself, but you know what? Still get surgery. And that would be, that's a, take, into a, take in all the information and make the best decision for you. If you don't, like if you weren't, like I would think that if I was professional, that would be clearly the best option right now is to actually have, but I know I, I an NRL player who's just had a, um, an ACL rupture and well, it's happening, it'll be happening regularly, like not too regularly. I think they get like maybe nine to 15 a season or something like that. Across the whole league. Yeah, across the league. Yep. But it's happening in the NFL at the moment, like all the time. Probably over there, they're like fast, explosive, cutting on synthetic surfaces, you know, um, and just big collisions. Mm. But imagine if like you could just get, like that's going to revolutionise ACL um, management is just going to this bracing protocol. Because if they've got 30 from 30, it's highly likely that they're onto something and that I don't think he's had one. I, I honestly think, I don't think he's had one yet that had the perfect rupture to put in the brace that actually hasn't healed up full anatomical. So if, if I was a professor right now, I'd say I'd be pushing for the brace. But I know that the clubs will override and are doing that and say, no, no, no. Just get yeah, just yeah. get the surgery. What's the um, healing time difference in the ideal situation for both? Well, they reckon they're getting this full healing. They can get a full healing in four to six weeks in the brace, but then you have to rehabilitate the knee. And I think they're getting back that they've got. I'm pretty sure. So so there's there's a case study through Kieran of some I think of a Premier League soccer player, and again I I don't know what it is. It might be it could be anywhere from like after four, six, nine or 12 weeks or something that just went back to Premier League soccer after a full ACL, ACL rupture. Wow. Because what would have happened, it would have healed somewhat with rest and then he just rehabilitated that knee. And if we know that people, there's, there's case studies out there where people are operating without a knee, with, sorry, without a knee, <laughs> without an ACL in their knee, that, well, if it's partially healed then, well, obviously they can operate as well. If yeah. you don't have one and you can mm. operate. So so what it is, see, you know, when you do your ACL, there's this there's this position, particularly in non-contact ACLs. So when your knee just gives way without anybody touching you, 
So that's called a non-contact. Mm. If someone touches you when you sidestep, that would be an indirect contact. So someone's contacted you, but not your knee. But then a direct contact's like someone just fucking fell on your knee, you know. So, yep. um, so there's if you go, um, yeah, like if you, yeah, if you do a non-contact ACL injury, which is the main type of ACL injury that happening to a lot of female athletes for different reasons, different you know body types, you know hormone levels, cue angles at knees. Stuff like strength, balance, proprioception, jumping, landing, ability. Like the better the better you've got in all those, the probably the less risk you are of an ACL injury. Um, you know, if, if you do non-contact um, ACL injury, so where were we? Lost. <laughs> so we're talking about. Um, can I can I pick yep. your brain just to to divert there? Um, just on the misconceptions around surgery because you've like. Um, a very strong case here for that you're putting forward for you know in, in the right situation yep. not getting surgery why is it that surgery would want to be avoided and i mean i i know right but from from your you know for a lot of people listening like yeah but i got something that's broken i go and get the surgery they put it back together what are the cons yeah of, what are the getting what, surgery? well yeah i mean because for me right i didn't you consider die. that it was going to take you know me I mean? like, so, so, so like, like yeah things like i think you know there's a one in a million chance that the anesthesis will like, you know, that there's something goes wrong there and you don't wake up. I don't even know if that yeah. is it, but yeah. I, well, I've got to get surgery on my, my lateral meniscus that is locking my knee when I get in a certain position. And I just got ran through the risks of surgery. And one of those risks was that where it's placed, it's near these, ner these two nerves that there's concern, like that there's concern with. And if the surgeon makes a mistake, he just said there's dire consequences. I don't think it's death, but it's just like maybe you lose function of your limb. Yeah. Wow. And it's like, I think he said it's like one in a thousand. So like- Small, it's- It's a risk. Yeah. But I mean, it's like, I'm like, yeah, book me in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll just run with it. So th there's just those risks. But then there's just like the cost, the cost of surgery, mm. the cost of rehabbing from the surgery. What, what, what are most people looking at? To go through a, a proper rehab from an eight, like to have an ACL reconstruction and then follow through with the proper rehab and the time spent in the gym and all that off the back of it. What's well, I think what, what, what would be a, what would an ACL cost these days? I don't even know, three and a half to five grand by the time you pay for everything. I think so. And, then, and if you yeah, get private health couple, insurance, they might give you 1500 back. On the anaesthetist as well? Well, let's say included in all that. Okay. That's about five grand, say. And then, I mean, most people, we do it a little bit differently because we just do rehab differently where we put people into group training after a certain period of time and they no longer need physio treatment. So we are quite, I sort of feel, um, we don't rebook, rebook, rebook with the physio because that's, you know, our actually business model is not that. We can sort of just sit there and do what's best for the patient. So if it might be, let's say you're seeing a physio twice a week for six weeks, 90 bucks a hit. And then, but most people are seeing, with the traditional model in Australia, most people are seeing a physio for twice a week for six months. So there's 180 bucks a week. Let's say you get back 40% of that on private health, but that'll run out. You know, it's, it's do the figures there. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Like so I, maybe, I would, maybe 10 Gs. I would thought that like, yeah, I reckon five grand. Like if you, because a rehab goes for like nine months minimum to return to sport. Um, and, or, or it's, not, it's recommended that, that you do 12 months of rehab. But sometimes again, that might, but you need to be working with someone who's trained for that at least six to nine, or if you want to get back to a field sport for nine or 12 months. And most people are either, you know, either they're getting their gym program from their physio or, you know, so most people should go be going to see the physio initially. 
they, tra- they should be transferring to an exercise professional that knows how to use exercise for rehab, like an exercise physiologist. Um, and then you and they do the training, like in work cover. You go see the physio for the back, and then you got to do a go to the gym and do a strength training program to strengthen my back, and then you return to work. Same thing with sport. You do this return to sport program. Um, so that, that's the negative surgery. But Joe, I wanted to mention, you know, before we're talking about how this um, bracing protocol came about, they sort of saying this would have been like how people coped back in the day without an ACL. The ca- this, ca- this came from Tom Cross, this caveman theory that, you, you know, you were hunting down a wild beast and the wild beast got the better of you. You tore your ACL and you limped back into the cage and you lie on, you lay on your side for, for you know four weeks, and your body just healed itself. It's like this caveman sort of theory about mm. how people operated on, you know, and how things healed itself back in the day, you know. So I sort of feel like that's like I sort of feel like most things in life heal themselves. Like that's the natural history of an injury. Um, Given the space and the, the yeah, time yeah, and, yeah, and then with the, with, with just like carrying on, keep mm, walking, yes. don't lie down and die. Yeah, and, it, and that's it's healing. Not, and it's not like you can just lie there for four weeks. You got to get up, got to go to the toilet, you got to try and procure some food. Like, yeah, I mean, we're still we're, lightly active. Yeah, likely active. But I think their point with the caveman, I don't know how like specific it would have been, but with, with the whole don't move your knee for four weeks, is like there would have been instances where people again back in the day got to maybe that was when there were caves i don't know if there's a time when there were, weren't caves but like well you had to just keep walking but like essentially most injuries go better if you keep moving it that's like exercise and rehab so i was going to say to you you know what these muscle tissue injuries this is a cracking study that was done they took a bunch of people with significant muscle strain in either the calf or quad or hamstring and what they did they took half the group and half started rehab three days post injury and half started 10 days post injury started doing exercise based loading rehabilitation it's a seven day gap one three days post one 10 days post the group that started three days post got back to sport three weeks earlier than the group that started 10 days post so that means a seven-day delay in loading up the tissue resulted in a three-week delay in returning to sport. I think it was on grade two muscle strains in the quad, hamstring or calf, but it was a, th- a seven-day delay. So either starting three days post or 10 days post resulted in a three-week delay. So it took three weeks longer to return to sport if you, if you delayed that rehab by seven days. So now when we have injury, like, like a muscle strain or a tendon, we are doing like isometrics the night of the injury. We've got a muscle strain doing isometric loading. So we're not moving the joint, but we're even starting to push the envelope there. And as long even with a ligament damage, as long as you respect the healing and don't act, like, so you can do loading of a knee that's had ligament damage without moving it, isometric loading. So you're not compromising the tissue. But if you mm. can start that early, but if you start... If you just wait two weeks and you sit around and don't move it, you're just getting all this atrophy and you, of the quad. And that, like you go into space and you don't load bear through. You see how quickly your quad just diminishes? Yeah. Then you just get this loss of balance, proprioception, dynamic capacity of the knee, strength, these are all capacities of human tissue, and you lose it. And then mm. I think once you lose it, then it takes longer to regain later on. So like by, by an early intervention – 
with certain types of injuries, not every injury, but certain types of injuries, you know, you're just getting back to, to sport much earlier, you know. So, I mean, that just, just having a shared decision-making approach on anything, like what are your options on, on like, yeah, we've been talking about the ACL, but, you know, you just got to be talking to someone that, that's up to date with the information, you know. Well, that's, I think, I mean, that's the real challenge with the whole thing is who you know and who you have exposure to at that moment where you've got the injury and you're seeking advice, right? We have this conversation with people all the time and I'm sure you you would have encountered this in the past, but you'll have someone, you know, a friend of yours or someone in our gym, whatever, who um, hurts their shoulder and they go see a GP. And then the GP is like, oh, you got a shoulder issue, um, go see this shoulder specialist. And they go see specialist and they're like, yeah, we're putting the system, oh, man, we've got to do a fucking surgery on your shoulder, you know? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, okay, like that's the process. Whereas if they went to see, uh, uh, let's say a physio and it, it, even then there's a range, they could see a shit physio yep. who just puts them on the same process or they could see someone that's got a, kind of got a similar perspective to you that is aware of all of the options and all of the current data and they could say, well, look, man, there's a couple of different paths you could take. Let's talk about what that might be. Maybe some strength training, maybe a little 100%. bit of manual therapy. So the the outcome for that individual is completely different. 100%. And I think that that's – It's like it's, sliding doors moment, hey. Yeah. Like yeah. Which, which way you go. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that – yeah, I, I mean – so there's a, there's a book called Surgery, the Ultimate Placebo. It's written by an orthopedic specialist. Um. Mike Harris, I think, surname Harris. Um, and yeah, it, it talks about what, like the surgeries that were done in the past. So, so this, is what, this is another really important point for people is that like when you age, you get wrinkles on your face, on the outside of your body, things droop, you know, muscles sag, whatever, um, skin, you know, you get wrinkles on the face. On the inside of the body, that wears out too with living. So let's say, for instance, right, someone gets back pain and they go, oh, my back pain. And then, then classically, you know, I might get back pain doing jits and then they stop. So I stop doing, oh, i got back pain. It's like, then I won't do jits for all. They stop moving, they become protective of that back. It's like, yeah, you might need to stop for like one, depending on what you've done. If it's just aches and pains, like one or two sessions, but they should just be like talking to you guys going, well, what can we do just to start moving again? And again, if you keep moving, it will likely resolve itself. But if someone goes, I've got back pain, they stop moving, it probably gets worse because of the lack of movement or it can get worse because mm-hmm. of the lack of movement. You start guarding and then they get a scan on their back. Oh, my back's not getting better, but they don't do anything to get it better. Mm. They go to see a doctor and you just go get put in that system we we're just talking about then. We'll get a scan and the scan says, oh, you got a bulging disc in your back. And it's like, well, we know that a large percentage of people over the age of like 20, and it gets progressively higher, have disc bulges and don't have any pain on their back. So on, on, a, on scanning, they've got disc bulges and zero pain. So if you have some sort of, you know, disc bulge or something that's finding on an MRI scan when you have pain, that may or may not be um, attributed to the, um, you know, what's going on on the inside of your body. That's a really important point. And what happens is, so even like they used to, um, labral tears in shoulders, they just, it just used to be a standard thing. They just have surgery in hips and shoulders on labral tears. It was just routine. And this is one of the surgeries that, this doctor talks about in this book is that, but now and now, like unless some, 
if, if, if it's extensive damage to the labrum, obviously there'll be a point where you need to have surgery to get stability back in that shoulder, but on a small tear. But again, so the big issue though is when someone says, I've got pain in my shoulder and they scan the shoulder and there's a labral tear, is the pain because of the labral tear or is the pain mm. because you're just weak as piss? Or yeah. you might have a bit of bursitis or, or, or even tendonitis. So it, tendonitis is like inflammation of the tendon. Tendinopathy is like the pathology now. of the yep. tendon. It's like, so we don't, is it because there's a tiny bit of sliding around of the, you know, the humeral head inside the glenoid sure. of the shoulder? Or is it just because you don't do any strength work and so it's, it's, it's nor, if, if, unless it's like extensive damage. The majority of time, if you do the correct loading, um, you know, like you, you, know, you don't require surgery to fix your pain. Just put them under. Is different. Just put them under. Don't do the surgery. Have them come too, and then give them a rehab program. Well, this they tricked them into it. So they talk about th there's a great. Have they done that. That's a, that's a bit of an unethical approach. That would be an awesome. Just nick them. An awesome study. No, I'm pretty sure they've done that. I'm pretty right. sure that, that that is they say placebo, right? So the surgery, the ultimate placebo is that. So why would someone think that they got better after after surgery? So they've got an injury, and they go for surgery. Why would someone, you know, let's say the surgery didn't work, it wasn't required, but they got better. It's like, well, they've just happen? paid five grand. You want to yeah. fucking hope it got better? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. So there's a, the power to believe. Totally. And, yeah. and you've got, and in talking about that system, you have uh, people who are there to perpetuate, like their, their job perpetuates the success of that system. Yeah. So I can, like, after I had my knee surgery, right, I'm in a fuckload of pain and, you know, swollen and all that. And I go see the surgeon for the follow-up. And the first thing he does is he does the same test he did on my knee yep. when I went in prior. And from what I could tell, the response is my knee didn't fucking budge. It was solid as yep. with, without an ACL and it was with. But he, the first time he's like, oh, mate, that's, there's a lot of movement there. And then he goes in and checks it again post-surgery and he's like, oh, mate, that's a solid ACL. That's, not, that's rock solid. It's going nowhere. <laughs> so he's just reinforced. 100%. I've you done walk a out fucking just excellent going, job yeah. and you're in great hands, you know? And, and, I, and I, don't, I don't necessarily dispute that, but I'm also very aware as a coach, as someone who has an influence over, like a, I'm in an authority position with the person I'm working with, a client. Yeah. You can, you know, you can, you, you can bias towards how effective your your methodology is. Oh, for sure. I, I mean, even just the way you talk to people uh, around, like someone goes, like if, if, if one of you, let's just say someone was um, doing jits and they, they went off the mat and their back sore. It's just something real general. Like I just saw a back and you go, oh, it's your back sore. Like, yeah, why? You're That's like, not good. Fuck, you could have fractured your back. And they're like, what? <laughs> and so it's like, you can just catastrophize the situation massively. And what, what, what the, the modern approach is, you, you just you shouldn't talk like that, you know. You, you shouldn't say you've got damage on the inside of your back, and we might say you've got a clinically significant finding. Yep, and let's explore that, and and see if you know exercise. We can look at the management for that particular condition rather than you've got damage to your back. Um, you need this. You know, you're going to need um, really intensive rehab, and you can't do. And you use all these strong terms. And like that situation is very, very different and can really impact on the success of that rehabilitation. Like people can end up with chronic pain just from like, you know, just when, when their thought processes strengthen around, you know, around pain. Like it's, 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 that's, that's a real problem in, you know, catastrophizing a situation mm. can make the injury worse. 
So look, there, there's actually on that, right, there's a, there's a guy called Adam Meekins. He's from the UK. I've done his course. He's a controversial physiotherapist um, from the UK. I think I follow him on Instagram. Yeah, and he's like, manual therapy sucks. That's his mantra. Is he, is he the guy that always rips on stretching? Uh, he probably rips on stretching. Um, mate, he always I, rips on static stretching? Oh, uh, look, I, I think only, he, he, he would only, you know. Yeah, I, I've fucking had a back and forth with this guy. Yeah, have you? That's <laughs> yeah. funny. Yeah. Yeah, well, you, you, know, you know what's interesting is that it's where Joey, he may be right, is if he's like, there's no evidence to show that static stretching improves, I don't know, a tendon. And if there's not, there's not. And... But I always say to people, when people start talking about stretching, I say, well, I've got a photo of myself on my Instagram doing the front splits. So I know a little bit about stretching. I couldn't do the front splits. Then I could after about two years. And did it heal anything? I don't think so. I just know that, like, if you stretch, you can improve the range of motion at a joint and it can give you degrees of freedom to stay out of trouble. Like, say, if you get caught in a weird situation and you can go there, well, maybe you don't injure the tissue when someone doesn't have the range of motion, they can't go there and they get put in that position and it tears. But everyone's got an end point. So I might go there, but then keep going. You keep stretching me and it tears. So does it really have a protective mechanism? I would say, yeah, because giving you more degrees of freedom before you tap or something like that or whatever it might be. or before, If you slip over, there's more range before it tugs and you land on your ass before it actually tears the tendon. Mm. So it's just increasing range of motion, right? Uh, in terms of do you get injured less, say, if you stretch? I mean, the, you just got to start nitpicking and it's like, oh, you know, pr there's probably no research that shows that if you do static stretching. But most people, right, they statically stretch. They, they don't stretch anything. <laughs> they haven't done it in a dosage that's caused a, 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 like a change to the tissue to become more flexible. So I do think that a lot of people's pursuits in stretching – I just like, it's just like. Yeah, it's the wrong approach. Well, it's just. Yeah. It's just, it's just, yeah, but if, if you like, there's nothing wrong with it. Like, if you just like, like to limber up. I always say, you know, like that Asian culture of like Tai Chi, there's that, you know, you've got the, you go to a bus stop. Because I actually saw this once. And you've, at the bus stop, there was just a, this little old white lady sitting there and just legs together, you know, their fists in a, you know, you know in a lap, On a waiting handbag. for the bus, yeah. you know? And then there's, the, you know, the, the 80 year old Asian lady behind her and she's like moving her arms above her head and flapping her arms around and just- <laughs> Always doing a little just, improv exercise yeah, routine. Yeah, just, just do a little, just stand. Then she probably goes down into that Asian squat position and, you know, because she just kept doing it right. So you just got moving your limbs. So I'm like, a, so if you're using stretching just to keep your body moving for general health and wellness, I don't think he would uh, dispute that that's not good for you. But when you start talking about- I was picking on him just because he was intentionally being controversial to get engagement on Instagram. And I criticized him on his, I called him out on his, his language. Yeah, right. And then, and then it was real funny because then he had like these S&C coaches, one in particular who followed, who's obviously a big fan of his, who then started coming on the attack against me. And so it turned into this big thing, which was exactly what he wanted, right? He got heaps of engagement on this post. Oh, and you, but, you, uh, but I was just like, you're in a position of authority there and you're intentionally using, um, you're intentionally using, uh, you're, you're, you're refusing to address the nuance of what you're saying so that people will comment and you get engagement on this thing. Yeah, I'll, look, 100%. Like, I, like that's, and he, he probably sits back, like, it's like those radio talk show hosts. I mean, 
they actually want the controversy. Like I couldn't, I couldn't deal. Like I'm just like, I actually don't even really, I don't, I'm probably just a person that, you know, but you probably just find it fun. <laughs> I actually hate it. I hate getting into that shit, but I was like, this guy. No, I'm doing it. I'm talking cool. Well, this guy's got a hundred thousand followers. And he's misleading them by putting this bullshit out there. So I'm like, and I, when I say that, I look at the, the rest of your stuff. There's a lot of great stuff. hundred percent. But I'm like, this one post, man, here's my issue with it. You know. Yeah, I think I, I think I said to you about the about the. I, I think I commented on one thing, and it, I think I think it was him, and it was about everyone was bagging the plank for core strength. So because you know, there's this thing like because you know if you squat well, right, that improves your core strength. Yeah. If you squat well. Yeah. You know if you do any functional activity well, you can I- improve your core strength. So I, I don't know what it was about. It was, it was supposed to be about the plank, does it, do you need to do something with the core? And, and I actually commented and said, do you know that in gymnastic strength training, the plank can be done, it can be done for a core strengthening movement as well, but it can actually be done to hold a protracted shoulder girdle as a progression to planche work. And I said, so in this post I talk about, is the plank good for core strength? Yes or no or something like that. And I sort of said, well, in actual fact, I think, you know, in, in gymnastic strength training, well, what I did is I use it to go to a, to a, a, a two-hand plank, hands and feet plank, protracted shoulder girdle to resist the retraction of gravity on your shoulder girdle into a planche lean, into an elevated planche lean, into a frog stand, into a tuck planche, into an open planche, into an open, into a you know, into a full planche, mm. and I, I sort of said that just like oh, like we're using, like this an expert there talking about, let's not dog on the plank because the plank's actually a good thing if you're progressing to planche work. Yeah, yeah. yeah so right. I said like that's that, that's the only time I've I've piped up, and I just think the conversation just actually fizzled out it just, it just went quiet because I, I think I was you know what I was saying you was were too right, high I, level for him well, well no it was, it was I said like like yeah, but will I get abs <laughs> yeah, but will I get abs but anyway back to this guy's blog because it's a cracking blog he talks about why treatments work right mm. and talk about treatments being touching poking prodding pricking whatever and this is what his big gripe is with you know you go there with your sore knee and someone rubs it and it's just like a a ligament that needs to heal like does the, does the MCL need to be massaged to heal I don't think it does. Is anything wrong with doing it? Probably not. Is it worth the 90 bucks? Depends on how much money you got. You know, like, <laughs> and, and, and you know, like, but so we should educate people to say that, um, and just because a treatment hasn't got any evidence doesn't mean you, that you, you can't do it. But let's not get into that. But anyway, here's this blog, Why Treatments Work by Adam Meekins. Um, he, he goes into why, you know, things happen. And it's like, let's say, for instance, like we'll say with the, the sore back, someone gets a sore back and then they finish jits and then it gets progressively sore and you're putting up with it, waiting for it to get better, but it gets progressively sore again. And then all of a sudden, like, ah, oh, fuck this. I need to go get treatment, massage, physio, osteo, whoever, go see someone good. There's heaps of good people out there. And then two days later, that back, man, my back feels good. That, 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 that guy fucking knows, he's, he's really good. It could even be with exercise. I might go and give an exercise treatment mm. and like on that, just, just after someone's at their vulnerable point, they're just, they're, so conditions are cyclical. They could, they could, so pain can peak and then it can start to come down. And if you time your magical treatment, exercise, cracking, you know, manipulation, massage for, for that natural downturn of the condition, 
you can look like a genius. But what happens if you're just two days away from that happening anyway, if you just kept moving? Mm. So that's one of the reasons. It's called like this, like, you know, the, the cyclical conditions. There's also natural history. So that's for another one would be, you know, you, you know, most things just like aches and pains, just you bang your elbow, your funny bone, it just gets better on its own. But if at that moment you do a Mr. Miyagi and do the, you know, rub the hands together and you blow on it or something like that, <laughs> yeah. and, and, it's like, and you rub the, the sore joint and you get it better, like someone might go, wow, man, that, that thing really works <laughs> well. I can get back on the limp yeah. on the mat. And so that's, you know, so, I mean, natural history is one of them. And he goes through about 10 different things, the will to believe. So again, if you get surgery, the will to believe. So, hey, or I went and saw this guru who's like, he's the man, he's the, dude, he's the man, mm -hmm. I've heard, I've heard, you know, this treatment. And it's like, then you go and pay a thousand bucks for it. The wizard. Yeah, well, you'd the hope. Wizard. The wizard. <laughs> we had a guy, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but he was actually the wizard, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and then, but, but, but it's, it, you know, this is all critical thinking. You're yes, thinking yes, critically yes, 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 yes. about, and I, I'm big into critical thinking and not just, <clears throat> sorry, not just, um, you know, because someone told Accepting you. something, yeah. Because that's, because it doesn't matter on something like a sore back, but then it matters when though, on like, when you get go for ACL surgery, when you might not need it, you've got this perfect rupture, then it matters that mm. you actually think critically, that you're aware of the research. So not on like no one, one off, you know, whether it's manipulation, dry needling, massage, something just, you know, we know that makes you feel good. You know, well, some people feel good. Um, so we know that's like, you know, that, that's, you can definitely do that. But then, it, it, you know, that same thinking though can get you into to trouble if you don't think critically and you're not aware of all the options with the, with the research. Can I ask you- um, one fifteen too. Good for- 115. 115? Yeah. Yeah, beauty. <laughs> what is that? We've got a time extension. Oh, I'm mad. Okay. Yeah. Um, can I ask about your gym? Yeah, sure. Live Athletic? Yeah. Cool. Um, what suburb are you in? Carring Bar. Carring so Bar. Way. Okay, mad. Um, do you serve the general population mostly uh, or uh, like I, I haven't been there um, and I've seen your Instagram and stuff and I see that you've got athletes working there as well, but there yep. are regular people. Um, who do you serve there mainly? Yeah, um, so we, our, I think our oldest client at the moment is 69. We had a 79-year-old, but they dropped out. <laughs> um, of life or the gym? <laughs> <laughs> That's the best comment ever. The gym, I think. Um, Quitter. <laughs> no, so, and, and our youngest in a kid's class is about seven. And look, we've got everything. We've got mums. We have um, people doing post-operative rehab, athletes, sports performance, um, we, we, we've got about a 20% a, a, um, split between um, performance, um, training, so like for, for sport, high-level performance, athletic development, so young kids and adolescents wanting to strive to be the next, you know, whoever. Mm. Um, we body recomposition training, we call it. So like my wife's mum, three kids, um, just wants to look good, stay fit and healthy. And we train them in a way – like me and Joe have had these chats. I'm a little critical of just like the whole hit training with just like the intention to burn calories. Because I sort of think- It's bullshit. <laughs> That's the conversation, yeah. Well, In short. You, you, you can do that, but I sort of feel like you can actually do it with a, with a mindful and more of an artful approach, like where you do things that agree and are good for your body. 
So like I run the sand hills, but we try to run it at thresholds. We won't throw someone in the deep end. And like, I'm just not into seeing. And so there's other big conversation about um, what's bad technique? What's bad technique? Is, it re- is someone really going to do their back deadlifting with a round back? And actually the research shows that, I mean, it's not the round back that it's a problem. If you start in neutral and then just go and just like the degrees of flexion increase dramatically, well, yeah, I mean, it's probably bad. But I mean, is doing push-ups with your elbows flaring? And probably back in the day I was like, yeah, that's bad. But it's like, well, are people getting injured more doing that than people who are doing correct movement? And the reality is there's actually like scapular dyskinesis, like what's bad shoulder blade movement? So someone's got a funky shoulder blade and they've got pain in their shoulder, like, ah, oh, it's the weird scapular movement. Look at that, it hitches. It's like, well, baseballers tear their labrums to be able to throw the ball at a certain speed. It's just like sometimes because you play that style of guard game that you develop this asymmetry. And is it bad when you get a sore shoulder? No, it's just because I sit that way for lots of hours on the jiu-jitsu mat. So just, just breaking down what's bad technique, that type of thing. So, I mean, so I do think there's a, this body recomp 20% of our, of our gym membership mm. is like, you know, for the girls, we do a, a, a program that complements the female frame. So lots of hip thrust work and, you know, just girls don't want to have a big upper body or well, majority don't. You yeah. know, like some do, it's awesome. So we'll give them a program that want to get big upper body. Um, but a lot, you know, want to go with this more style of training that complements the female, you know, with what society perceives, I guess, and what they want. And then we have a sort of men's one just to stay fit and healthy. Back yeah. and buys. Back and buys, yeah. chest and, yeah, yeah. chest, shoulders and tries. <laughs> <laughs> so there's quite a variety there. Yeah, real variety. And you were saying, uh, from what I know, maybe you can explain it. You have people working on personal programs for their own goals, but all together. Yeah, so our group training is, so when I say, when you say group training, there's often, there's a, you know, like you guys might prescribe a workout for the group and you'll have regressions and progressions that for, for that particular. So it might be a push-up and you've got the incline bar over there, the incline push-up, and you've got your, you know, guys doing handstand push-ups and the push-ups prescribed. So that, that would be good group training in my opinion. You've just, the, the practitioners know how to scale load on the spot for whoever comes to that class. Um, then you've got, um, you know, then you've just got this workout that's just, this is the work. And I think most, even, you know, ones that, you know, you, we might be a bit critical of in terms of just that, you know, bash, barge, hit, hit style workout. Mm, mm. Most of those places have probably got some sort of regression as well. I mean, they're not silly. Um, but it's sort of, but once you sort of put the timer on and you're trying to just, and the music up and there's not a lot of thought going into it, that's sort of where you start doing things that just don't agree like with the body, like multiple burpees and your hips can't go to that range or you're not strong enough. You're just cranking on your lower back. Mm. I'm just like, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm not really a, you know, I'm not really a big fan of that. I just, you know, I sort of think it can be done, you know, and there might be trainers that are in those style of workouts that can really do well at, but I think the programming's sometimes a little off and it's, it's hard to actually, even if you're a good trainer, facilitate that. I mean, yeah, I, I, we've, we speak about this, this a lot. And I think that on paper, that style of training and that approach to exercise is fine if the, the human that's doing it has really good body awareness, coordination, and like a good general level of, of strength. Yeah. Then, then it's like, fine, you can, you can throw yourself into the fire of thrusters and burpees and running and whatever because you just have like enough kind of hardware and software to be able to do it pretty well even under the stress. Yeah, genetic mesomorphs like him. Yeah, but most- <laughs> Who do I point to then? <laughs> not the white guy. <laughs> but most most people 
coming to a gym don't have those things. They're not at a base of, of, of what I would consider, I'm sure you might agree, that, that you know, they've got, they've got uh, imbalances. They've got areas of tightness that impede them from moving well. They don't have the same kind of coordination necessarily or, or uh, mind-body connection. So you put them in a workout like that where the intention is to go hard and fast and they're not able to regulate themselves, you know? Yep. Uh, and you can train that over time, but I think that yeah, before they get to that point, there's a higher risk of injury. And also you're just not developing, you're slowing down their time to develop those sorts of um, attributes, coordination, awareness. Yeah, for sure. Like we all know, right, that people get, like we get tweaks in our gym. Like I, I like to think that we don't get, oh, yeah, I can't think, touch wood, uh, any, anything crazy fr from our training. But like who's to say that, you know, like one of your top level athletes been deadlifting for a long time, just doesn't rupture a bicep, you know, doing a weighted chin-up, just for whatever reason, you know, you've – so we actually had a guy – here's one for you. We, we had a guy who has – was back he, – he strained his pec benching and I said to him, okay, let's just go through this. I like to do this if someone gets like a niggle in our gym and I say, did you hit your build-up sets? Like did you – and he goes, yeah, I went, you know, bar, 60, uh, 80 – 87 and a half for two, you know, two by five at 92 and a half. And on the third rep of the first set, I can't remember if that was what it was, but something like that, uh, he he just done the first two reps fine, then he felt this niggle in his in his pec and he racked it back up. So, okay, all right, so you, you went through your normal process of doing build-up sets before you hit your work sets. So did you – what did you lift last time? And he went, you know, uh, you know I think it was like 90.5. He'd been on, you know, using fractionals. And what was before that? 89. And what was before that? So there wasn't this spike and we didn't just go from 70. Let's try 92 and a half today. Mm. So he just didn't try to do something that he was unaccustomed to. Um, you know, it was the same time of the morning that he trained. And it's one of those ones where it's like, yeah, whatever. I don't know. Like, it's not a big deal. Nothing much happened. He's, we did some floor press and just reloaded over about, I don't know, five days. I think he's back, you know, probably seven or 10 days later back benching again. Wouldn't even be a grade one. It'd just be just a minor sort of pec strain. But at the time you feel it, you're like, well, oh, it doesn't feel good. But mm, it just heals mm. up so quickly, right? Because the body's so good at healing. So I like to sort of say, if, if, if we know if you do everything correct and you've got regressions and you've got warm-ups and stuff and you be progressive, people can still get into trouble. So mm, if you mm. don't do that, it's like, oh, of course people are going to get injured in gyms a lot more if you don't take care. Mm, you mm. don't take precaution, you know. So... Um, you, uh, the way I see it is you, you get injured whether you do train or you don't. Yeah, 100%. The nature of the injuries changes. Yep. And a, a way that it was put to me once that I really liked was that you, if you are in a consistent training process, you are going to get small injuries. And, and um, occasionally, like you're doing something like contact sport, obviously the risk is a lot higher. Yep. But you are going to get small injuries, but the hope is that they save you from the big injuries down the track. Yeah, 100%. Like in, in the pursuit of trying to minimise, we know that these ACL prevention programs can reduce the risk of an ACL injury by up to 70% in females. So in, in, the, in, in your process of doing hopping and landing and building strength in your quads, that you, know, you might hop and land and roll your ankle or you might hop and land and strain your calf muscle for whatever reason. Of course, like it's like, well, you're doing it to prevent an ACL injury. That is such a good point you just made then about that. You know, it's... That's exactly why you're doing it. I do think there are, like, so what, the concept of Live Athletic for me, like you've got an unbelievable culture here. I mean, I was so excited to come down to this gym and I saw the, 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 the post about doing the chin-up and 
consuming a grape on the descent. <laughs> or what the, what the, the yeah, top of if the you get ascent. Chester Bar, you, you get the, the grape. You get rewarded with the grape. Yeah. Like the king's. <laughs> Does someone deliver you the grape? Yeah. <laughs> no, anyway. But, um, but the concept of Live Athletic was, you know, to live athletically. So if you get chased by a dog down the street, can you run down the street without, you know, twinging your hamstring, rupturing your Achilles, jump over the fence and survive? You know, like it just makes sense to be athletic in life just to, to, to do, be able to do the things that you want to be able to do. You're not mm, limited mm. by um, – you're not limited by a lack of strength to go on a, a holiday and walk for, for six hours a day, you know, right? Live athletic. And in the pursuit of doing that, I studied through my 20s and early 30s Pilates. Uh, I didn't study yoga. I, have got a, I had an EP that was a yoga instructor, but I studied stretching um, and I practiced stretching. I looked at gymnastic strength training. So I looked and said, who are the strongest on earth powerlifters? Who can move weight the fastest, weightlifters? Who can, um, you know, uh, who are the best pound for pound movers, gymnasts? Um, who can run the fastest, jump the highest, track athletes? And I studied and then who can, who's probably got the most, you know, artistic style of movement? You might say sort of dancers, ballet dancers, dancers mm. Pilates, yoga. That, and, I, and I studied though, I went on pursuit of studying those different forms and worked with different coaches. And I took enough, for, and I actually probably did it more for sport. So like anyhow, out, my style of training an athlete is we do barbell strength training. We actually don't do a lot of Olympic lifting because I think it's just a skill in itself and I'd rather invest time into plyos, like jumping plyos, because most sports, you don't move a bar fast except if you're a weightlifter. So, like, you know, we lay this base and just get strong foundationally through barbell strength training, um, gymnastic strength training so that you can twist, turn, tumble, fall and, you know, be strong in all those positions that underpin sport. We, we do the base of athletics, so we sprint, we do hops and lands and different types of athletic drills because that underpins field sports. Your movement art forms like martial arts, you know, like you, you know, I think the limitation of gymnastic strength training is that like just the leg strength. There's mm, only so many mm. pistols you can do or even weighted pistols. Sometimes you just want to get a bar on your back, get a good squat and you're systemically strong. Um, Preach. Yeah, so, I mean, you guys, I mean, are probably, you know, like I said, are doing a lot of the movement style gyms and practitioners are, are, are prescribing with that. But, I mean, I've probably transitioned more into sport and rehabilitation. And, I mean, I grew up um, when I was – so when we moved to Sydney, a guy called Paul Graham, an ex, you know, bodybuilder, he was Arnold Schwarzenegger's best man at his wedding. He owned a gym at the Sharks in, in the Leagues Club and my dad was the new coach, so obviously they got to know each other and my brother trained there and did some gym work at the Sharks and then he moved his gym from the Leagues Club to this gym in Miranda. And I, when I left school, I was fortunate to train with him and a guy called Harry Eden, who was Paul's friend, another old school guy, and we just did old school bodybuilding. Like I was never exposed Bang. to anything to do with, you know, drugs or anything like that. It was just, you know, I just we just trained freaking hard, mate. Like it was just like dumbbell work, just – yeah, supersets. He supersetted me because he thought he'd get me fit for football, which is some element of truth. But we just like lifted heavy, lots of isolation work, and it was probably the 
probably the biggest I ever got doing that. I think I, was, I used to eat a loaf of bread a day. Pardon? <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't gain weight so you're not eating enough. I literally ate a loaf of bread a day. That's and so um, Sliced white bread? That sliced kind of white, way. mate, with, yep. with margarine. Tip top. Nice, yeah. <laughs> the tip-top diet. And oh, I mean, it worked fiber. because it obviously gave me, you know, carbohydrates are fat sparing and protein sparing. So, I mean, I, I gained muscle. I was a bit puffy in the face. <laughs> um, so, look, you know, I, I, I studied like all of those fundamental areas to, to, you know, and I've been doing it for a long time to sort of, you know, to, to be, you know, come up with Live Athletic. Yeah, very cool. Just on that, guys, too, um, I was going to say, so happy to chat about whatever else, but if, Joe, if you had those, any specific questions about knee injuries for like anything, those questions, I just don't want to no, no, waste not any your time talking about getting off track. Mate, um, I didn't. I was going to uh, I was gonna say we should wrap it up there and yep. I, I would actually, I would love to get you back in another time to just continue to go deeper and I, I think that the um, the piece you touched on at the, at the back end there, like the, what you said about your, um, about the purpose behind Live Athletic is it, it echoes what Jungle Brothers, like our values are and that's, we, we defined in a different way. We use the term durability and robustness yep, uh, and also the ability to to, uh, uh, to express yourself but it's the same shit it's being able to handle what life throws at you it's being able to run away from a dog catch the bus go jump in on a, on a friend's fitness class where they're doing something that you're not used to but you have a body that can do those things you know and that's really 100% and then and that's and just that's, on that Joe where does where does your um, where does the you know the so the, the move and the lift and like what's your philosophy on the fight with that just, I'm just interested to know. Um, we f- looking at it from, a, from like a, well, it's the-, the So the I can most, train every lunchtime? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> we created our gym to be the ultimate training space for us. We yep. said that from the beginning. That's we cool. want a gym that we want to train at. And we were going around town, doing jiu-jitsu over there, doing CrossFit over there, going down to there for the calisthenics, like traveling around, piecing this shit together. But we're like, there should be somewhere where we can do all of this. So that was one part of it. The other part of it is that from like a, this is obviously very simplified, but looking at what the human body was required to do, um, going back to like pre you know, like going back to, right, hunter-gatherer type days, it's like you had to be able to shift objects, you had to be able to move yourself around a, an ever-changing terrain, and you had to be able to defend yourself or attack. Yep. So fight, lift, move was an element of that. It was, it was, it was general physical preparedness for a savage environment that really wants to try and kill you. Can I just say, Joey, that on that, you know why that's, that's so good is because jujitsu changed my life. It did like gave me confidence doing jujitsu. So you're obviously, I mean, to, to create a space where you can do, obviously like we've all got all friends, have got jujitsu gyms and there's like, and I say this, there's lots of people for like for people that are doing, you know, BJJ well. So it's not like anyone's stealing. I don't think, you know, stealing clients off each other, but I reckon like to bring that in to the gym, it's cool. I mean, um, but it did change my life. So I, I believe, like that philosophy, you could say, like my kids are doing jiu-jitsu because I want, why do I want that? Because if there's some dickhead that's giving them trouble or they just get caught, I don't want them to go looking for fights. I really, again, the jiu-jitsu is probably like, you get aware that there's a, there's a black belt that can fuck you up. Yeah, <laughs> so I mean, it actually gives you awareness to say that, hey, I've got these martial arts skills and if it's taught in a way, it might give you some awareness. Like, yeah, maybe that guy with the cauliflower ears. I'll let it go. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna let it go. I don't like the look of those ears. You know, so I, I never mean, liked it that much anyway. Take her. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> very, mate. I, I, we've chatted about this before, but I, you know, it's it's very similar to my concept of the athletic. But you, you know, you're, you're bringing in, and I think if people can 
learn that. It can be a life changer doing the JITS part that, you know, that we don't do, but I mean, you know, that, that can be a life changer, you know, to people's confidence in that. And, and the, the other one to that is that well, this is such a cool place. Like I'm not cool and I wouldn't say my gym's cool. <laughs> I think we're very good at what we do, but, you know, if people are out there and they want to, if you're cool, <laughs> you're in a cool place, <laughs> this is like an unbelievable, like, you know, it's a, yeah, it's, it's um, I, I've sort of seen it on Instagram, but to sort of walk in and like, even like the mezzanine is cool. Like <laughs> gyms have mezzanines, their mezzanine is cool. <laughs> you know, the, the freaking wall bars, they look cool as well. And, you know, I don't know, like it's, it's you, you know, you've created something unbelievable here. Um, so I think if, um, yeah, as it expands, it's going to be, going to be good. Well, thank you, man. That means a lot to us. Yeah. That's, you know, cultures, culture's always been important to us. And sometimes, you know, it takes precedence over other elements of building a successful business, but we've always held to that thing that we wanted to create a place that was special and unique, you know? Yeah. Mate, um, where can people find you? How can they get in touch? What's your Instagram? What's your website? Yeah, so the website's liveathletic.com.au. Um, I mainly post on um, Justin Lang underscore EP or liveathletic underscore EP. I've got the both, the private and the business one. Um, but yeah, you know, you just I think if you just uh, Google Live Athletic, you sort of stumble across my details somewhere there. So thanks for the shout out on that one. Bro, pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for coming on today and for, for giving us like just a little insight into the fucking inner workings of you know, all of the knowledge and, and whatnot that you got in there. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. Pleasure, bro. Thanks, Cheers, boys. Thanks for listening, folks. Uh, if you enjoyed that episode, please help support the show. Take a screenshot of it. Post it on your Insta. Tag Justin. Uh, tag us. It just helps get the word out there. And there's, there's people out there like Justin who are doing amazing work. Um, and it, the more exposure that these people can get and the more exposure our show can get, the, the, the more it, it helps us do the work that we believe is important. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks, Panavore, for the coffee as always. And if you need anything from us, junglebrothers.com or at Jungle Brothers Movement on Instagram. Thank you. We'll catch you guys next week. Peace. Thank See you, boys. You. See you.